This audio is from the Axis Church and is from our sermon series, The Gospel of Matthew, Following the Unexpected King. For more information about the Axis Church or its mission in Nashville, Tennessee, go to theaxischurch.org. Let me pray for us this morning as we get into this portion of Scripture. We've got a lot of work to do, and, uh, and I, I pray that we'll work through it diligently and be able to focus. So let me pray for these very things, okay? Jesus, um, Lord, we need you to come and, and just like you taught your disciples here for, for several days about who you are, Lord, over the next several minutes, I need, I need you to, to teach us, Lord, somehow through, through me and this sermon, Lord, would you allow us to see who you really are and, and allow us to see, Lord, how we are to follow you in light of what you have done and, and who you are even now. So, Lord, help us with distraction. Lord, help us with concerns, things that we should be concerned about, a lot of them. But, Lord, help help remove those concerns even from us now so that we can give our minds and our hearts truly to to this moment, allowing our hearts to truly experience you, our ears to truly hear you, and our eyes to truly see you. Do this by your Spirit through a marvelous act of your grace. Lord, give us these eyes and ears and hearts to, to know you more today. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. So, as, as means of setting context, let's look back at verse 13, even though we preached this last week. Let's, let's, let's start there so we can kind of pick up together uh, as we move forward. So, look at Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This is important, let me hold here a second, because he was just confronted by some of the Jewish leaders on asking him to give them a sign to prove that he's the Messiah. So his question of identity, the question of identity around Jesus is present and in in the context here, even though they've, they've changed locations a bit. So he says, who, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do they say that I am? And the disciples responded, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, other, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They just kind of lump you in that category. And then he said to them, to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, the spokesman, more or less, for the disciples replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. First time that is equated to Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. You are the Christ, the Messiah. It's a title, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. It's like his full name. It's like a family name, very familiar to his home. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And here's why you're literally blessed. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This isn't your own logic. This isn't what you've understood through, through the popular uh, uh, titles and, and, and uh, people assuming who I am, right? Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he continues here. This is our text for today. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock... I will build, I will enable, I will construct my church so much so the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell is a poetic expression for that of death, 
and those who are part of the kingdom that Jesus is building will never ultimately die. He's declaring that the people of God will not suffer eternal death. It's a radical promise right here. And he continues with Peter, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All right, so let's go back a little bit to verse 18. The, the name Peter <clears throat> means rock, and it, it's pronounced similar and spelled similar even in the Greek. And so Jesus is playing on this meaning to designate Peter as a foundational piece of the new people of God, the new kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating, is bringing about. And Peter's leadership would involve authority as a steward figure, where the keys are a picture of his responsibilities in helping establish the church. And you see Peter's activity all throughout the New Testament, even in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes down on the people of God and Peter preaches in Acts 2, the first Christian sermon. So Peter was vital all through the New Testament to, to the forming of the church through the Spirit of God in his life. He's, he's called here to be a representative leader and not an overlord. Peter, Peter's not someone uh, even designated as a leader, as someone who should even be, be prayed to. He's simply a representative leader that Jesus is speaking, saying this is the role that you are to play. So Peter's authority and his leadership will declare what is and what is not permissible in the kingdom of heaven. To bind and to loose have this meaning in the school of, of rabbis, okay? Now the Holy Spirit would work through Peter in implementing what the church would actually be like and what the church would actually do. Because up until this point, there isn't the church as we know it. This is a, this is a hinge period, all right? This is the, uh, still caught in this intertestamental period between the, the, the law of the Old Testament, the children of Israel, and the new kingdom, the new testament, the new covenant, marked by the finished work of Jesus. And so here, Peter's in this limbo period here, even before the Holy Spirit descends upon the church and forms his people, gathering together, celebrating Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He's, he's in this rather unstable, theologically, uh, this unstable place in redemptive history. So the, the future perfect verbs that we have here give us a little insight into what it means that Peter can basically loose something on, in, in, on earth because it's loose in heaven, loose something in heaven because it's loose on earth, bind it, name it, claim it, wherever it might be. It looks like this is the case, but when you look deeper, we see something interesting even with the way this is given to us by Jesus. You see, the verbs will have been bound and will have been loosed suggests that the heavenly decision preceded Peter's declaration of it on earth. So hang with me. This is what this means. Peter would be used not to create God's plan and God reacts off of what Peter does and kind of plays second fiddle to the redemptive plan of history and honestly, if you're looking at any of the disciples, Peter's not the guy that you want to have that role. If, he's, if, if God's reacting to that guy and playing off of his strategy. But what we see Peter doing is echoing the, the plan and design of God that's been set in motion by God before time began. So literally, Peter would carry out what, what had already been sovereignly loosed or bound in heaven. So there's a promise here 
that, that Peter will not have to rely on his own creativity or his own performance to carry out what Jesus is calling him to do. There's a promise here that the Spirit will work in Peter in such a way that Peter and the plan of redemption of God's people are unified, so unified that it seems that whatever Peter looses or binds actually happens through his own power. Jesus brings even more clarity to this when he promises that this isn't Peter's church that Peter's building, but it's the church of Jesus that Jesus is building. He says, I will build my church. It's Jesus' church, and Jesus promises to build it, empowering Peter to help carry out the initial construction of it on earth. Now, when Jesus refers to it as ecclesia, when he refers to it as the, the people of God, that's actually an Old Testament phrase. So what Jesus is claiming here, using the Old Testament phrase for the people of God, is that he's the fulfillment of the people of God that goes all the way back to Abraham where he says, this is my people, the people that was promised to Abraham belong to me, and I'm forming, building that people. Remarkable claim to, to be even preceding that Abraham figure back in Genesis. Practically, 2015, me and you, when God calls you to do something that he has uniquely designed and created you to accomplish before you were even born, all you must do is submit to him in scripture and prayer and obedience, asking him to flex his magnificence through your life. Peter wasn't the hinge on all things resting. The spirit was with him. God's activity in his life was with him. What it is that you've been created for, designed for, to accomplish as an ambassador figure for Jesus and his kingdom here on this earth, working to bring about his kingdom, he is with you and he will accomplish it through you. He's not asking you to do it alone in the power of your own flesh. He's, he's, he's expecting you to lean into him and to allow him to grant you the means and the spirit to accomplish what it is that you were created to accomplish, no matter how absurd. I mean, Peter, a, a key figure in the church? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a stretch. Yet God was with him and God did it. And we're fruit even of that happening, even today, having a church in 2015. Submit to God and allow him to create in and through you what it is that you've been designed to accomplish. Don't try to force it through your own creativity and passion. Submit that to him as we're going to learn even more. So, so, so here Jesus does something very strange, and we've seen him do this on more than one account. Look in verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, we've seen him say, don't tell anyone that I've healed you before. Don't, don't go tell everyone that, that, that I just changed your life. Here, he's saying, don't, don't tell anyone that I am the Messiah, that specifically that I'm the Christ. So this is a surprising response, asking his disciples to keep his identity a secret. 
Now, the reason is going to come later and even all throughout the rest of Matthew. But basically, there's going to be an eruption if, if he is spoken about even more so as the Messiah facing the, the beating and death as he makes his way onto the cross. And so, so just as Jesus would withdraw from a crowd when they were wanting to make him king, remember? And just as, as Jesus would often tell people not to tell anyone about what they've experienced to him, Jesus was protecting the timeline. All right, there were some, some very sensitive matters. The plan had to work out accordingly and things had to unfold specifically as God had designed them to. So this was holding back a reaction that you see even Peter, he, re, he reacts irrationally, aggressively towards Jesus. And this would happen, if it would happen with one Peter, it would happen with a number of other followers as that continues to be spread. So that's why I see him holding it back, saying, tell no one about me being the Christ right now. So though he stays in Caesarea Philippi, we're, we're given a phrase in verse 21, from that time Jesus began. Now, this is a page turner in Matthew, all right? This is, a, this is a turn in the mission of Jesus. The geographical focus of the mission is now Jerusalem, and the picture, the focus of the mission is the cross. So from now on, Jesus doesn't teach the, publicly as much as he teaches privately. Here, he's instilling in his followers what it's going to look like to follow him. And he spends a lot of time. He spends, if you look in chapter 17, verse 1, you'll see where, where Jesus spends six days talking through this stuff with his disciples. And then after six days, he takes his three, his closest three disciples up onto a mountain to pray and to have further teaching, okay? So there's a lot of not public ministry here. There's a lot of private with my men, with my disciples as I press in further to this mission. So this page, verse 21 is a page turner in the mission and life of Jesus Christ and Matthew and his gospel as well, okay? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, reveal, teach his disciples, reveal to his disciples that he, their Messiah, the one who they had such hope in, must go to Jerusalem, okay, that's fitting, and suffer, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, hmm, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So here you have the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, the, the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and this is their official rejection of the Messiah by the highest court. And here Jesus is unpacking step by step the Father's plan for the Son to make orphans his children. Jesus is unpacking step by step exactly how this is going to go down as he redeems his people, creating the kingdom that's been promised. So as Jesus begins to shift his attention directly towards the cross, he's, he's, he's explaining to his disciples what's, what's going to go down and how it's going to work. 
So his disciples are here, and they've surrendered their careers to follow Jesus. They've said goodbye in many ways to friends and family to follow this radical rabbi. And Jesus tells them that he's going to suffer beatings and die and, and beat death. But you, being a diehard disciple who's never firsthand seen anyone beat death, you don't even consider those last words and on the third day be raised. I believe this is why we see what is required from Jesus to the disciples is a, is a complete reorientation around their thinking. You see, they had to gain an entirely new paradigm for how their Messiah was to fulfill the prophecies made by him. Like, how in the world are you going to... They don't get the paradox. They don't get that through his death there is life. They don't, they don't, we read it now, looking back, it makes sense in some ways. Still takes radical faith to believe this. But in the minute, in the moment, these disciples had no clue how he would accomplish what it is in being the Messiah and how that is to come about with him being dead. Like, that's not how... It's, it's, it's illogical. It doesn't work this way. You see, there had to be deconstruction and reconstruction of their paradigm around Messiah. And from now on, all the way into chapter 21, Jesus' attention is given to unpacking this for his men. From now on, Jesus is marching towards death, and his disciples had to grasp this new perspective. And we see how they react. Peter has one way of thinking about how Jesus would conquer and rule. And it wasn't death. That had nothing to do with it. It was life. But Jesus says that he would need to die. And Peter responds there in verse 22 by essentially saying, you can't die and be the Messiah. I can't let that happen. Over my dead body? That's ridiculous. There's no way. I just now declared you to be our Messiah. You told me I got it right. I still remember that, right? That's a highlight moment for me. But now you're telling me that you're going to die. So either I'm wrong or you're wrong. Either you're not the Messiah or you are the Messiah. I don't see how this is going to play out with you dying. Or we have it written in verse 22, literally this way. And Peter took him aside. Now this is, this is somewhat of a formal interaction here where you... You remove someone from a public conversation to a very private, one-on-one -on -one moment, all right? He took him aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. I'm going to do this. Never! This would be like, to, to understand the master-disciple Rabbi, Talmud, dynamic. This would be like you seeing one of my children interrupt my sermon and put me in the corner and tell me I cannot get out of the corner until 30 minutes has passed because I'm in timeout. Or my son JJ would sit here and tell me to lean over his legs and he would take a switch, a hickory. This is what you used to do before kids actually told parents what to do. Anyway, you're welcome. And uh, I'm, I'm lumped there too. It's a new generation trying to figure this thing out. Where he would not spank me. You don't get a spanking with a hickory. You get a whooping. 
All right, that's how things used to happen. It was a big difference. That's what this dynamic would look like. This is antithetical. This, this, could not, this is absolutely swapping seats. Peter becomes, in all essence, rabbi, and Jesus becomes disciple. And Peter looks at Jesus and says, you are never going to do what you just said. That's not going to happen. Clearly, Peter heard Jesus, or else he would not respond this way. He's not over on his phone saying, oh yeah, cool, yeah, whatever he said, that's cool. No, he's engaged, he's listening, he's present. That's not going to happen. So he heard Jesus, he didn't hear all of Jesus, but he heard enough to respond incorrectly, but to respond. Far be it from you, Lord, to be killed by the great leaders of our nation. Far be it from you, Lord, to go to Jerusalem to die, the very center of where we expect you to arrive and sit on your throne and reign as king and make our lives better to bring us wealth and comfort and prosperity, to, to give us a nation that experiences epic prominence and power. Jesus says, oh, I'm going to Jerusalem, but it's not to do that. It's to die. I imagine Peter's thinking, man, all our obedience and all our following and all our surrendering, we're finally going to be able to cash in on this. Like we're going to be rewarded for sacrificing everything to follow this guy. But he said he's going to die. You see, Jesus knew that there was no other way, but Peter couldn't fathom there being any other way than to suffer and die. This was just too much for Peter. Jews at the time, and Peter himself, they understood the, the Messiah's work as primarily earthly and politically, all right? And this is why he's the unexpected king, because he didn't come in forcefully politically this way. You see, defeat and death and even worse, rejection by Israel's official leadership was not on the agenda for the Messiah. Not in their minds. He had no paradigm for this. Death was not part of the Messiah. Had no place. And in expressing this, Peter is speaking of the things of men. And as long as Jesus' disciples shared purely this human perspective, Jesus' mission or the things of God could never make sense to them. And this is why Jesus had been anxious to, to hold down his identity because it would respond and react. Everyone would be reacting this way. Then you see Jesus' reaction powerfully given to us here in verse 23. Jesus turned and says to Peter, all right, he just said, blessed are you, right? You're given the keys, bind, loose, like you get it right, well done. Foundational stone, and now you see him become a stumbling block in a second. Look at this. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. I believe here that, that Jesus is looking through Peter. He's looking beyond Peter 
to the force of all that is evil, Satan himself. And we know that Satan wanted Jesus dead. It started that way whenever Satan devised this plan when Jesus was an infant where he killed every boy around the age of Jesus in order to kill Jesus. But Jesus lived. And so here we see Satan wanting Jesus to die and wanting the mission to be thwarted. And what you have here is, is, is Satan even entering into Judas later, one of the disciples, in order to have Jesus arrested. And so Peter unknowingly here is being influenced by Satan in his disbelief and misunderstanding of the Messiah and what the Messiah must do and what the kingdom of God would actually look like. Satan is the, is the king of the things of man. And Peter's thinking here is worldly. It's aligned with Satan's deception. Satan is working. Jesus is poised. And Peter is panicking. And it was Peter's lack of listening and understanding that caused him to be a stumbling block to this mission. This tells me that we must be extremely careful in trusting our own hearts and motives. And we must place ourselves deep within the word that is the truth, that is a lamp for our path, that is our guidance. And we must place ourselves deep within community, deep within fellow Christians, within the church, so as to protect us from drifting to setting our minds on things of man, of setting our minds on things of ourselves. Scripture gives us an opportunity to check ourselves with truth. Community gives us an opportunity to check ourselves with wisdom, Proverbs says. We must realize that without God's help revealing us the truth, we can be easily and quickly deceived. How quickly Peter was deceived here. Consider Proverbs 3. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Man, don't lean on your understanding. Don't put your trust in yourself. Don't put your trust in your brilliance. Trust in the Lord with, with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord. In other words, submit to him, turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. May we beg God to allow us to be a rock for his kingdom and not a stumbling block for our own kingdom advancement. And this is Peter here in this in-between picture. Look at verse 24. Jesus is, man, he does some serious teaching here. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Peter, you, and the others, anyone else, if anyone desires to follow me, you must. There's not another way. If you want to follow me, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, your selfish thinking, your simple career-advancing desires that are in you, and follow me. Sacrifice them all to simply follow me. Doesn't mean you're not going to do those things necessarily, but it means submitting them to him and living those things out in light of his spirit's blessing, in light of his spirit's guidance through these things. This is the opposite 
of setting your mind on things of man. This is listening. This is trusting. This is working and striving to understand the things of God. We must shed our way of doing things and begin seeking God in how he wants us to go about life. Now, if we look deeper here in context, we, we learn something I find remarkable here in the phrase, take up your cross. See, when Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my follower, you must deny yourself, take up your cross. You couldn't take up your cross without denying yourself first. Because to take up your cross, this phrase meant public execution. This isn't simply patiently waiting through some tough times or some superficial irritations. Deny yourself and die is what these disciples heard. You see, this phrase meant something. Take up your cross meant something to first century Jerusalem. This is the phrase that, 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 is, that is pointing to sure death. You see, phrases have meaning and gain their meaning through a particular culture where they're given. For instance, if you're, I don't know, probably 25 or older, maybe 30 and older, when you hear September 11th, you don't just think about a history book where you read about it or news where you read about it. Man, you remember where you were on September 11, 2001, what you were doing, what you were smelling, where you were going, where you had just come from, who you were with, where you wanted to be. You, you feel all these emotions. I still remember wanting to be with my family. It's like, it, I was in Virginia. I wasn't even close to the area where the tragedy was going down around the Pentagon and around the Twin Towers. But I still remember all these years later, I don't have to find what I was feeling. I know I wanted to be around my family and just rejoice that we're alive and that we were actually afraid for our country and afraid that, that we were going to be destroyed that day, like even in Virginia, even in Arkansas, even in Alabama and Texas and Seattle. The country had a fear. We've, we've forgotten this fear for a number of reasons. But those who were alive and well on September 11th, we remember a lot about what was going on. Before September 11, 2001, September 11, 1975, do y'all know what happened then? Me neither. It meant nothing. Ferguson. Ferguson, I know Ferguson's in, in Missouri. I know it's just outside of St. Louis. If you asked me two years ago where Ferguson was, I'm what's Ferguson? When I think Ferguson now, there's a lot of things I feel. There's a lot of things I understand. There's a lot of things I, I find myself still ignorant of in a lot of ways. But all of us know where Ferguson is. When we hear the word Ferguson, we think, we feel. We don't just ignore it. My point being, phrases, titles given in particular cultures gain meaning from a shared experience in that culture. Take up your cross was the phrase that Roman executioners would tell Jewish people, really anyone who revolted against Rome, but it's what you were spoken. Whenever, those were the phrases, the official phrases that basically said you were on your death march. So when Jesus said, deny yourself, he was quoting a Roman centurion. 
You must deny yourself and take up your cross. In other words, you must bend over. You must pick up your cross, carry it down that Roman road. You drop it when I tell you to drop it, and you don't drop it a single second before. And then you're going to lie down, be nailed to it, tied to it, lift it up, and you're going to die. When Jesus says that if you want to be my disciple, you must carry your cross, deny yourself, he's saying you must surrender your life, period. You must take on my life. There is no casual follower. There's no casual Christian, not according to, to the Bible. You don't casually take up your cross. You don't just go out one day and say, what are you going to do? Well, I don't think I'm going to take up my cross later and I'm going to come back and go fishing. There is no return from taking up your cross. There isn't. You don't, you don't casually do this. It's suffering, sacrifice, and death. You don't drift to following Jesus in obedience as a disciple like that of what Jesus describes right here. You don't drift just taking up your cross. It's completely intentional. It's striving. It's disciplining. It's knowing that you're entering into inconvenience and suffering and death. Death to the way that you knew life before. Different. Radically different. So not only is Jesus crushing the disciples' dream of a physical kingdom, an earthly kingdom, a, a political kingdom made up of health and wealth and prominence, he here is taking it much further, telling them that in order for them to be part of his kingdom, they must be willing to die too. Oh, Peter, I'm going to die, and you're going to too, if you want to be my follower. Now, I fear that as we read this and hear this preached in 2015 America, that most of us are missing what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to reorient your life, to deconstruct life as the American dream, and find it recreated, reoriented, restructured through the life and mission and death of Jesus Christ, and now how we're to respond as missionaries in light of being part of his mission, his greater mission. We don't understand what it looks like to be part of his kingdom. We understand that the way of obedience and the way of glory and the way of honor for Jesus and his disciples was death. Yeah, they suffered. But for us in 2015, there's just, this is different. Like, God knows that, right? Like, we don't, he doesn't really mean that we, like, like be inconvenienced. Like, there's, there's, a, there's a cool way to, to be on mission, right? There's a cool way to pursue Jesus. It's not like, all, all, all radical and stuff, like, like being inconvenienced and, and, and found in uncomfortable places, living in context as a missionary that, that's not as pleasant as what we would want. That's not really what he means. That's for certain people like the, the disciples and Jesus, but that's not really for us. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. But what a, deny yourself take up your cross and follow Jesus. He says it as clearly, as boldly, as accurately as it could be spoken, even by using a cultural phrase to paint the picture so that we would not miss it. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Well, when I get older, I'll deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. 
well, for now, I've got my own personal agenda, I've got my own goals, I've got my own dreams, and it just doesn't fit in light of submitting those things. I pretty much know how things should go for the next 10 years. Then you simply do not want to follow Jesus. That's what it comes down to. You don't want to be a disciple. Don't say that you're trying to be a disciple and hold on to these things. Because you can't. Not, not this Jesus. Maybe one that you've created so that you can live life that way. But that's not a Jesus that's going to save you. That's a Jesus that's going to damn you. Because he doesn't exist. And you're placing your hope in a Jesus that's a myth. Your own personal creation. You see, you're, you're convinced that you can find joy, true joy, and satisfaction in other things and in other ways than living in obedience before God and following Jesus. The call stands for us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and follow Jesus. But what about my comfort? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. What about my sex life? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. But what about, and fill in the blank. When, when a king is truly a king, there's nothing outside of his sovereign domain, of his kingdom, right? He's, he's the authority over all things. Yet we want to compartmentalize the Christian life where Jesus is, man, we give him complete control over these things. But in the, honestly, in the things that truly matter, it's untouchable. Not even, not even God can speak into these things. Dying to ourself is surrendering to Jesus and it's submitting everything to God. Now, of course, for the disciples, we know that it literally meant taking up their cross. Many of them went the way of the cross. Many of them literally died. But for all of us in this room, some of us may actually die on a cross. We have no idea. Some of us in this room may die martyrs' deaths. We have no idea. I pray that we do not cower away from those opportunities. But for all of us in this room, all of us that are pursuing Jesus are called to figuratively take up our cross, lay everything of who we are, our rights, our dreams, our passions, our comfort, lay everything, submit all before him and pick up only what he leads us to pick up in his timing to do so. Surrendering. But now Jesus moves on here in verse 25 following and he gives us insight as to how denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him is good news. But it doesn't sound like it's good. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows me for my sake. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. By the way, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What, what's a man to give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man, he's going to come with his angels, and, and this is like the culture, the climate, like the surroundings, in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
We will find life through denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. We will experience the life that we were all created to live, that we're all longing to experience. The, the life lived in restored relationship and friendship and fellowship and eternal joy with our creator God. And I know that, that each and every day we're led astray to believe that we will find life, if you will, in other things and in other ways other than denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus in obedience to his teaching and his commands. All other things ultimately will break down on us and disappoint us. Every single thing that we place our hope in other than Jesus Christ and the restored relationship that we have with the Father, everything that we place our hope in other than that will disappoint us every time. And here Jesus is telling us the truth. It seems ridiculous, but this is the key to real life. Seeking comfort, isolating ourselves from community, sex outside of the marital covenant, pornography, Overeating, starving ourselves, overspending, saving everything, unhealthy relationships, shopping and having the newest and the best, concerned with constant concern over career advancement and a pay raise and respectable degree, placing hope in marriage and children, having a nice home or living minimally, overworking, being lazy, all of these things that, that we place our hope in, promise us a lot as we go about them, but they cannot epically, eternally deliver and satisfy. Jesus can. And what I love about Jesus is he tells you the truth up front and he delivers on his promises. All these other things, they lie to you up front or they're silent about the truth and they fail you on the back end every time. You don't read the fine print. You just click, I agree to the terms and conditions and you move on. And you don't read the fine print. Jesus gives you the fine print in large, bold font up front and delivers on his promises. There's something greater than money and popularity and expensive and nice. To die with all the best stuff is still to die. And all your best is left for the thrift store, the yard sale, the estate sale, or the dump. I'm living this right now. In two and a half weeks, I'm going to my grandfather's house that he's had since 67. And we're moving all of his stuff, all, literally all of his possessions. Last night, my brother slept in my grandfather's bed that's now been moved to his home in Lynchburg, Virginia. I'm getting a couch and a chair from my grandfather that he bought. It was nice. It is nice. Some of y'all probably think it's a whole lot nicer than I do because I think it looks old, but y'all probably think it's awesome, all right? I want to have it refinished. It's probably going to kill you that I'm refinishing. Anyway, there's an entertainment system with the huge tubular TV and the record player on each side. <laughs> I know y'all like that, all right? And, and it's, it was $1,000 back in 1960. That's a lot of money, y'all. You could buy, in 1985, you could buy a Chevy pickup truck for 7000 In 1960, this piece of furniture cost $1,000. It was nice. I bet you my grandpa brought people over to his house. I mean, look at this, man. Whew, look at the detail. Listen to Johnny Cat. No, I don't know who would be hot back then. I don't know. Anyway, the point being, everything in his home is emptied. Someone's even going to be sleeping in his home in three weeks. 
were closing on the 22nd. All of his possessions are being sorted through by family and not even himself. He's still alive. We can ask certain things about certain possessions and get some clarity on what this baseball is or what this is or whatever. But the point is, he had some awesome stuff. But it's going to the thrift store. It's going to the dump. It's going to my house, my brother's house, my parents' house. The only thing he has is him. That's it. Yet we place such hope in property, in brick, in possession, in entertainment center, in couch. We place so much of our identity in these things that are going to belong to someone else. Someone's going to use your golf clubs. You're going to sell your iPhone. Somebody's going to live in your home. You can't take these things with you, yet we place so much hope in them. Those who seek out their own interest in their own ways never find the satisfaction that they're looking for. Self-denial is at the very heart of Christianity. And finding and discovering life in Jesus Christ is the only way to truly live the Christian life. Yet we're convinced that we know the best for us. We know the way for doing life. We don't need to trust anyone but our own strategy. After all, we've learned, we've consulted, yet we're so biased. Friends, God is better at being God than you are, even for a second. And how's it going if you are trying to be God over your life and, and not submit things to him? How's it going? How's it working out for you? If you're like me, it doesn't work out well. And I feel foolish when things blow up in front of my face, especially when I place such hope and confidence, not only in that, but my strategy in getting it and, and like the heart feeling I had in, in wanting it to begin with. What places do you have in your life where you're refusing to deny yourself? And as a result, you're missing real life and joy that Christ wants you to experience. He's not saying these things to be mean and cruel. That's not, what, that's not the heart of Jesus. Jesus is saying these things so that we can have our best life now and forevermore, rightly understanding his lordship and our fellowship, if you will. You see, if God is in control over all things, as I've just preached him to be, and he's not good, then that's terrible and terrifying. Especially when you think about us submitting all things to him, right? If he is in control and he's not good, that's frightening to submit all things to. To deny ourselves and let him rule over all things. But if God is in control, and if God is good, then I find that as a game changer. I find that as being able to place hope in him and trust him with things. If I know that he is perfectly, 100% good. Look in verse 27. I'm going to build on that idea. For the Son of Man is, is going to come. He's going to return with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 
This, if you were with us last week, this is referring to the approaching storm of judgment referenced last week. We know that God is good and worthy of our trust because of how we are loved by him through the work of Jesus Christ. We know that God is good and worthy of our trust because of how God pursues us and rescues us through the crushing of his own son while we were enemies, making us family and friends, sons and daughters. Pastor Jacob opened up with this passage out of 1 John. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how we know God and his love. He sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Not for ourselves, submitting things to him, taking up our cross, denying ourselves, following him, that we would live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be that wrath sponge, punishment absorber for us and our sins. We know that God is good and worthy of our trust because of how we are treated as a result of the finished work of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And my friends, those who find and, and believe in Jesus and find and place their hope in him will be paid, if you will, to use this word here, for what Jesus has done and accomplished for them in and through his life. Christians will not be paid by God for what they've done and what we have earned. Jesus is paid for that. All we have done on our own is live lives of constant rebellion and perpetual sinning against God, ourselves, and everyone around us. And we know in Romans 6, 23, that the price for those sins is death. You get what you pay for. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, those who fail to respond to the call to deny and to take up your cross and follow Jesus, those who fail to respond Jesus, to respond to Jesus by faith, will be paid for what you have done. Every single sin, every bit of punishment. But Jesus has come to take that burden upon himself. He's come to take that cost upon himself. He's come to assume your deserved burden himself. This is what he's done for you. And the gospel tells us that, that we have all earned death, but we're given life through the work of Jesus. We must trust this. We must hope in this. We must fight to believe this more and more and more and more often. This is what we must work towards is, is placing more of our hope in this and less hope in an entertainment system or a couch or a home or whatever it is that we place our hope in. A good name even, a good reputation, popularity, prestige, wealth. As we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we will learn to remove our hands a little bit more from this stuff as we grasp a greater, more firm hold upon Jesus and what it looks like to live our life in light of him being our everything, our hope and our comfort. Or we'll revert back to striving to reverse the curse on our own. And the gospel says that only God can reverse our curse, and he did it through sacrificing his own son so that we would be made sons and daughters. So all of, all of us, I'm calling us all to believe Jesus today.
I'm calling us all to believe that dying to self is finding life. I'm calling us to believe a paradox and place our hope in that. Believe that losing your life is actually gaining life and all that you're longing for. Jesus says that how, that's how it works. And now I know that the Spirit is the only one that can reveal this to our hearts. And so now, and during communion, as Pastor Jacob can come on and lead us in this, ask the Spirit to reveal these truths to your heart. Ask the Spirit to reveal these things to your mind, to your soul. Ask Him to help you believe more the ridiculous things that Jesus says here. And let's not respond like Peter, saying never, there's got to be another way. Let's respond the way that Peter should have responded. He said, if you say so, I trust you. Let's do this together. Let's beg the Spirit to move in our hearts. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, thank you for telling us the truth. Thank you for not deceiving us, not having us fall prey to a bait and switch. Lord, thank you for loving us enough, loving Peter enough, loving the disciples enough to tell them the truth about what life is all about and how to find the greatest satisfaction and joy and fulfillment and comfort, true comfort in life, how to find those things. Lord, it is hard to think about it, that the way to having it is giving away, that the way to life is death. Lord, it's, it's tough. It's a struggle. I admit that. Lord, this is why we need you. We're, 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 we're leaning into you. We're asking you to reveal these things to us. We're admitting that we can't on our own have the faith to do this. And Lord, I'm saying on behalf of all of us that we don't, we don't want you to, to consider us workers of the enemy hindering your kingdom and its advancement. Lord, we want, we want to help bring this about. We want to restore things that are broken. We want light to come into the darkness. We want truth and justice to reign. So, Lord, would you help us? Would you guide us here in what it looks like individually and corporately as a church for us to learn what it looks like to truly, to truly be a disciple? Lord, we want to honor you with our lives. Lord, help us to be obedient. Help us to be sensitive to your leading and help us to hold things very loosely and hold you very tightly. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for suffering in Jerusalem. Thank you for dying in Jerusalem. And thank you for beating death in Jerusalem. And we can't wait to see you again in your Father's glory. Lord, thank you. In Christ's name, amen.